I want to read to you a passage from the Old Testament uh, where David is going through a difficult time. And I don't know how many of you have ever been through challenging seasons in your life, but you know, when you read the biblical narratives, when you read the biblical stories, some of the stuff people went through makes me glad they went through it. You know, and, and it kind of what I go through, it's like, okay, this changes things a little bit for me. This puts life into perspective. You know, David was um, somebody who was kind of plucked out of obscurity, really, at a very young age. At 15, around about 15 years of age, he's anointed the future king of Israel. And that's quite an experience, you know, when you're in a family where when there's a house party, you're not even invited. You know, and Samuel the prophet is there, and it's a pretty big deal, but you're, you're not even part of the scene. You know, and so there's, there's a little bit of a family dynamic going on right there. And then eventually he, he is there in the presence of Samuel, and he's the one chosen to be the future king of Israel. And you, if you can imagine Eliab, the older brother, he does not like that. They have a little confrontation later on when Goliath is on the scene. But, but you know, it's just not great for David. But then this happens, and then when he defeats Goliath, it's like his life is on this trajectory of blessing and success, and it looks amazing, and he's taken into the household of Saul, and then he grows up there, and uh, eventually he's 20 years of age, and when you're 20, you're allowed to join the army, you're allowed to fight, you're trained before then, mind you, but, but at 20, you're actually allowed to be in the army, and it's not long. Probably within about three, four years, he's actually leading a thousand men. And he is really successful as a warrior. So he's not only a brilliant musician and a worshiper, you know, he's a great warrior. And he's, you know, and then they start singing songs about him. You know you're, you've hit success in life when people sing songs about you. You know, if your name is in a number one hit song, it's like, oh, man alive, you know. I remember the first time Michelle Pfeiffer's name was in a song, you know, it's like... And her kids were so embarrassed about the whole thing. But, but you, you know you've hit success when they write about you in that kind of way. And everything is going good right up until that moment. And then it goes badly wrong. It's like Saul keeps a jealous eye on David. And from then on, he's trying to kill him. So, so everything flips until eventually David runs away. And you think about this. In one day, he, he has to leave his wife. And actually, she's given to another guy to marry. Imagine that. He loses his status. He loses his income. He loses his job. He loses his house. He's in a cave. And it's like, wow. It's like, and you think you have a hard time. You know, that's what I call a major crisis in life. And, but he has this relationship with the king's son called Jonathan. Jonathan is probably about at least 10 years older than David. And when David defeats Goliath, they make a covenant together. They make a special agreement. And it says they loved each other like, like they loved their own soul. In other words, it was, it was a real closeness of friendship and brotherhood where they would give their lives for each other. And it's like Jonathan takes the initiative in all of this. And, and you think about Jonathan, who is going to be the future king of Israel if his father hadn't messed up. And here comes along this young teenager who he knows is anointed future king. So he takes everything that belongs to him that represents kingdom 
and gives it to David. He, he takes his sword. There's only two swords in Israel at that time. Saul has one, Jonathan has one. You know, he gives him that. He gives him his cloak. He gives him his belt. Everything, and, and what Jonathan is really doing is saying, I'm going to align myself with the purpose of God. I'm not going to be jealous. I'm not going to be insecure. I'm not going to be somebody who, who, who's going to act like my father is right now. I'm going to give you and recognize what's on your life. It's an amazing humility. But, but David is hiding out in the woods at Horesh, and he's really under pressure. And Jonathan goes to him. So we're going to read the text, and then I'm going to give you five simple things that I think you can do as a believer to encourage anybody who's going through a difficult season in their life. Is that okay? If, if I had to give a title to this message, it would be simply this, strengthen the hands of the fearful. Strengthen the hands of the fearful. Is that okay? So we'll read 1 Samuel 23, verse 15, just a few verses here. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. I love that. He didn't just strengthen his hand, he strengthened his hand in God. In other words, what he did was direct David to have faith in God. God's in control of this situation. It looks bad, but he strengthened his hand in God. You know, so much of, of what you see on TV today and, and modern psychology is you can do it. You know, you can do it. Whereas Jonathan said, you can do it because you have a relationship with a God who can empower you to do it. That's a different thing. You know what I'm saying? It's not about good psychology here and positive thinking. It's about you have a relationship with the creator, with the living God, and he is for you. He is on your side. Can I get an amen? amen. Oh, good. You do respond. That's fantastic. You know, sometimes we just need permission, don't we? And so he, he, he strengthened his hand in God, and he said to him, do not fear. Notice that. Do not fear. Jonathan sensed David was in a place of fear and pressure. And he comes with this word, do not fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David remained in Horish, and Jonathan went home. You know, one of the things that I've observed about people, it says in Proverbs 12.25 that anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. So, so, so there's things in life that want to pull you down, that cause depression, that cause sadness, that cause anxiety, but a good word can change everything. And that's what Jonathan did here. And I believe that we're called as God's people to do the same thing with one another. We're called to edify one another. We're called to encourage one another. We're called to speak the truth to one another. We're called to pray for one another. There's so many, there's about 134 one another statements in the New Testament. And you cannot do life alone. You cannot do ministry alone. You cannot do anything alone. We've been baptized by one spirit into one body. The hand cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. We need each other. And one of the reasons we do is because there's a real enemy who wants to pull you down. There's a real enemy who wants to bring pressure into your life. And through bringing pressure, just remove the joy of living. Jesus comes to give us life. 
And so Proverbs 25, 11 says, a word fitly spoken is like an apple of gold in a plate of silver. How many would like an apple of gold in a plate of silver? I mean, that's pretty cool, isn't it? You probably could find that in Dubai, actually, couldn't you? I just saw the biggest gold ring I've ever seen in my life at the gold market. It's like, wow, this is for real. I took a photo, you know, I thought, yeah. So glad my wife didn't make that demand on me. But let me give you five things that I think is going to help you in your, in your life, in your ministry, in your experience here. Here's the first thing. It's, it says, <clears throat> he was in the wilderness of Ziph. Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish. Here's the first thing I want to say. Jonathan rose up. Just really simple. He rose up. What do I mean by that? I mean, he was a friend in distress in a bad place, and instead of being passive, he took the initiative to rise up and go to him. Do you know, I, I, I find that many times we're not intentional enough in ministering to one another. We're not intentional enough in encouraging one another. It's like, oh yeah, I'll bless him. Oh yeah, I'll pray for him. But Jonathan said, nah, I need to visit him. And, and by the way, just in case you're wondering, Horesh from where Gibeah, where his home was, is about 35 kilometers. About 35 kilometers. He did not have a Pajero. He did not have a Mercedes. You know, this probably meant it was a wood. So he probably had to walk there. And not only that, he didn't have GPS. It's like everyone is looking for David. Saul has got 3,000 soldiers. And he said, to anyone, he said, if any one of you guys kill David, you don't have to pay taxes in Israel anymore. It was like hired assassins, 3,000. It's like, whoa. How many of you know that's pressure? Jonathan said, I need to go to him. I need to speak to him. I need to rise up. Have you noticed how many times in the Bible, you know, People rise up to do something. And the church needs to rise up. Come on, don't be passive. Don't be somebody who's just, ah, someone else will do it. Ah, someone else, oh yeah, we have a good pastor, he'll do it. Do you know, you know what amazes me? I go around all over the world, I go to churches, and the expectation on the visiting speaker or the part, I want the pastor to pray for me. I want the man of God to pray for me. I want the man of God to lay hands on me. And it's like, you know what we're really here to do? We're here in Ephesians 4.11. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. We're actually here to equip you to be confident enough for you to do the work of ministry. You're the one who's meant to prophesy. You're the one who's meant to pray. You're the one who's meant to encourage. You're the one who's meant to lay hands on people. Because you have the same Jesus in you that I have in me. We've all been baptized into the one Holy Spirit. Come on, don't be passive. Where you always... Listen, the only people you find who are passive are children. Like, feed me. Babies. Like, feed me. Change me. That's okay for like the first year or so. Isn't it a great moment when you get to the potty training phase? I know it's a risky moment, but isn't it a great moment? Because suddenly what's happening is you're no longer having to change stinky diapers. And it's like, thank God when that phase is over. I tell you, I've had six kids. I know all about those phases. 
It's like, what a time of rejoicing. And, and what, a, what a kindness to your bank balance that is. <laughs> what, we, what we're really here to do is mature people. Help people mature. It's okay to be dependent when you're a baby. But Paul says, no longer be children. Be men in understanding. Come on, grow up. Grow up. Take responsibility. There's nothing better for a pastor to hear these words. How can I serve and bless the church? They're great words for any pastor. It's like, wow, somebody wants to take responsibility. Somebody, rather than, oh, yeah, I'm just going to rock up to church. I'll be there five minutes late because it's always easier that way. Maybe I'll leave two minutes early to get out of the car park quick. You know, now, I know none of you would think like that. It's like we think what's convenient for us rather than rising up and taking responsibility. That's what Jonathan did here. It's the second thing he did. He went to where David was. He went to where David was. Sometimes you just have to go to where people are. That's true metaphorically. That's true literally. Sometimes you just need to make the effort. I had a pastor who, who um, discipled me when I was in my 20s. He was a tremendous guy. Had a tremendous influence in my life for about a seven-year period. And, uh, and then he went back to the States, he and his wife, and they were leading a church over there. And we heard one day, my wife and I, that, that, they had, that she had cancer. And it was life-threatening cancer. And I just wrote to him and I said, you know, my wife and I would just like to come and pray for you and your wife. And is, is it okay if we do that? Uh, we don't want to be an inconvenience. We don't want to add to your burden. And he said, oh, no, that wouldn't add to our burden. That would be great. So we literally bought two tickets from London to Boston and got a flight, found somewhere to stay, and just stayed there for five days so we could pray for her. It was as simple as that. People say to me, you did what? Did you do ministry? Well, as it happened, he did let me preach in his church, but I didn't go there for ministry. I went there because somebody needed their hands to be strengthened in God because they were going through a difficult season. Come on, friends. Make the effort. Make the effort. Oh, look at the time. The traffic's going to be really bad. You know, how many excuses do we just make to ourselves rather than responding to the prompting of the Spirit? Hey, this is something you need to do. And, and, and God has a timing for everything. You know, in the story of Lazarus, Jesus delayed going to Lazarus when Martha and Mary called him. You know, and in the end, he said to his disciples, our, our friend Lazarus sleepeth. He's asleep. And they, and they said, oh, if he's sleeping, that's great. And he goes, actually, he's dead. Don't you like the New Testament, the way it says that when you're a believer who dies, it's like going to sleep? I don't know about you. I, I don't like the idea of dying, but the idea of going to sleep, I'm okay with that. But the reason that the Bible says that over and over again in the New Testament is because when a believer goes home to be with the Lord, God has already dealt with the issue of sin. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. So, so it doesn't say it the other way around, by the way. It doesn't say the sting of sin is, is death. It says the sting of death is sin. So what God has done through the cross is remove the sting. So that when you die, you don't get stung, but you go into God's presence. You don't experience the consequences of all the things you did wrong. It's called redemption. It's called salvation. It's called the good news. Do you get this? 
And so Jesus goes to, 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 to Mary and Martha, and it's like his timing is perfect. And they say, oh, if only you'd been here. You know, if only you'd been here. Like, like that's the sound of regret. That's the sound of, oh, you know, you're too late. You know, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said, well, he's going to rise again. Yeah, I know that's going to happen in the future. He goes, I am the resurrection. And you get that whole story, and it's just magnificent when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And it's like, you know, I've often thought to myself, why did Jesus cry out, Lazarus, come forth? You know, and I think one of the reasons he did is if he had just said, come forth, every dead person in the sound of his voice would have risen from the dead. So he said, I just need one guy today. His name is Lazarus. He's been taken early, and it's like it blows everybody's mind. And, 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 you know, when we go to people, when we make the effort to be where they are, it's like you bring life to them. You speak life to them. You put life in them. You reawaken life. Here's the third thing that he did. He spoke from his heart prophetically. He spoke from his heart prophetically. I, I love this. Do not fear. The hand of my Father shall not find you. When, when he spoke prophetically, he, he really spoke in three dimensions. The first, thank you, the first dimension was this. <laughs> There's always someone, isn't there? It's, it's like my six kids, you know, trying to find peace. The first thing he did was he spoke to his distress. The second thing he did was he spoke to his destiny. And then the third thing he did was he spoke to his own desire. He spoke to his distress do not fear. I love this. Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. Now, 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 if you are on the run and you have, the only place you have is a cave or a forest to hide in. And, and there's 3,000 men after you and you've got 300 men with you. That's a 10 to 1 outnumbered. And you feel the pressure of the moment. You feel the fear. You feel the anxiety. And Jonathan speaks straight into his distress. He says, don't fear. The hand of my father, Saul, shall not find you. It's like, wow, a prophetic word from the son of the man who's trying to kill you. How good is that? It's like somebody who believes in you from the house of Saul. Somebody who believes in your calling, somebody who believes in your future. And he speaks straight into his distress. And then here's the second thing he does. He speaks to his destiny. You shall be king over Israel. You know, it's one thing to speak to a person's distress because that's to speak right into their current circumstance. But when you speak into their destiny, you're speaking into their future. You're speaking into what they can look forward to. And every single person has a destiny. There's a future to you, for you to look forward to. But here's what happens. The current distress you go through, the anxiety you're going through, is robbing you of the picture of the future. So what God wants to do is speak prophetically to now how you're feeling and saying don't fear that's why Jesus when he turned up every time it was like don't be afraid but then God wants to speak to your destiny you're going to be king over Israel do you know according to Romans chapter 8 we're going to reign with Christ we're inheritors with him friends I'm preaching much better than you're responding come on now this is truth 
This is your future. This is what Jesus has purchased for you. We need people who speak to our distress, but then we need people who speak to our destiny. And if you can do it at the same time, it's even better. It's even better. And then here's the third thing he does. He speaks to his desire. And this is the bit that really touches me. You should be king over Israel. I should be next to you. You know, sometimes we don't always get what we desire. You know, Jonathan would end up dying on a battlefield with his father Saul. He never would be next to David. And if you read 2 Samuel, you know, David, it all begins with David's lament. A song that he writes because of the death of Saul and his best friend Jonathan. And sometimes, you know, when we encourage people, we speak to our desire for them. We speak to our desire. But desires are not always fulfilled. But they're things that we can leave with God. He wasn't afraid to say it. It's like, you're going to be king, and here's my desire. I want to be next to you. I want to be right alongside you. And, and then he says this. He says this. I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. He knows this. He knows you're going to be king, and he knows I want to be next to you. Can you imagine the, te- the tension that was sometimes between Saul and his son Jonathan? Because Saul is trying to kill David, and, and Saul is, his argument is, I'm protecting your future, son. And Jonathan's reply is, you're not protecting anyone's future. This is about you and about your insecurity and about your jealousy and about your selfishness. I I know my place. I know where I want to be, right next to David. And so my encouragement to you this morning is be people who speak from your heart. Do you know, I, I believe that when you speak from your heart, you can be prophetic without knowing you're being prophetic when you speak from your heart. Here's the fourth thing that he did. He made a covenant with David. I love this. Throughout the scriptures, David and Jonathan, I think they made three covenants in total. But this is one of those times they made a covenant. They made an agreement together. I'm for you, you're for me. I will never betray you, you never betray me. I will never speak against you, you don't speak against me. It was, a, it was a bond that they kept renewing. And when Jonathan finally died and David ascended to be king over the whole of Israel, it took seven years for that to be accomplished. He suddenly made this statement. David would be in his 50s by now. Is there anyone from the house of Saul? Is there anyone from the house of Saul I can show kindness to? And it was a sign of this covenant they made that day that he showed loving kindness and I think we need to make agreements, if you like. You know, we don't, we don't have to draw blood and do weird stuff like that, like they did in the Old Testament. We're under the new covenant. But we can make promises to one another. Hey, I'm here for you when you need me. Hey, I'm here for you when you need me. You know, just to have that kind of reassurance, that kind of promise, that's what a covenant is really rooted in. And then finally, here's the last thing, point number five. He left David to work it out with God. You know, 
sometimes when you encourage people, you need to leave them with the word of encouragement and let them work it out for themselves with God. You need to strengthen their hand in God. You need to do something that's positive. But the key thing is then, they don't need you. They need to find their strength in God. And that's where Jonathan went back to his home and he got on with life. And it's like we spent seven days with our friends in America and then we left. And the amazing thing was within three months she was totally healed. It was a good outcome. But our role was strengthen their hands in God. Strengthen their hands in God. Do you know, the word strengthen there, sometimes in a different translation, it's, by the way, this went dark, so I've completely lost my timing here. Okay, okay. I got the signal from the pastor here. It's sometimes translated encouraged. Strengthened is translated encouraged. But it's the Hebrew word hazak. Hazak. Now listen to this. In the Old Testament, this word that we translate strengthen or encourage, the most times it's translated, 48 times, it's actually translated strengthen, but 47 times it's translated as repair. So to strengthen somebody with your words is to actually do a repair job on them. Have you ever thought about that? That what Jonathan is doing here is repairing David's soul by speaking truth to him. And truth has the power to do that. Truth has the power to set you free. So when we speak to people's distress, what are we doing? We're speaking truth. Like David said, he's, like David did in the Psalms when he wrote Psalm 34. And he wrote that when he entered the cave of Adullam after running away from the Philistines. And he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord. He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. You see, that's David working it out for himself now that his hands have been strengthened, now that his heart has been repaired that has been mended. It's like it's a whole heart. It's, I'm going to worship God. I'm going to be in this place and come on, magnify the Lord with me. I've often thought... Thank you. I've often thought, how can you make God any bigger than he is? You know, magnify the Lord with me. But, but the situation is this. Often when you're going through a difficult period in your life, you're problem gets big and your God gets small. So when you worship, what are you really doing? When you magnify God in worship and praise, what you're really doing is acknowledging his greatness and suddenly your problem gets smaller. It's like your perspective begins to change and what you felt was going to overwhelm you, now you can say, I can do this. By my God, I can run through a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. Who is this Philistine who defies the army of the living God? He's going to be food for me today. Come on. I don't know about you, but I feel excited by this. People need to hear your words of encouragement. 
people need to, how many times has a thought come to you about somebody and you said nothing? You didn't make the phone call, you didn't write the text, you didn't go to visit. And it's like, but we want to be used by God. Well, if you want to be used by God, just be obedient to the little he gives you. And if you're obedient with the little he gives you, he'll always give you more. Because he knows he can trust you. And, and, and that's what God is looking for from you and I. He, he's, he's looking for us to be people. You know, Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.18. He said, he said, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you can wage a good warfare. See, David could wage a good warfare because Jonathan came to him and spoke truth to him. Spoke to his situation, spoke to his future, spoke to his desire. And it left David repaired. And we all need to be repaired from time to time. You ever have a car that breaks down and you have to put it in for repair? Isn't it nice when you get a new car and that just doesn't happen? But you know what? As people made in God's image, because of Genesis chapter 3, because of the fall, we all carry brokenness. And our brokenness manifests itself in different kinds of situations. And what we need is people around us who believe in us, can speak to us, repair us, strengthen us, encourage us. How many can say amen? Amen. Okay, come on, give God a good clap.